Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And as we start getting closer to peak season here, we just want to make sure that you are up to date regarding the different types of camping that is available here in the valley and where those different types of camping are permitted in case you're coming to run or hike or bike here on our really great network of trails. So we've included a link to an article in the show notes to this episode. And if you check out that article, we can then all do our part to be good stewards of this amazing place. Okay, today is a big day for a couple of reasons. First of all, we've got part two of my conversation with one of the top ultra runners in the world, Michaela Gralia. And also today, June 22nd, the new edition and new English translation of Michaela's book, Ultra, comes out. And I really hope that you all get a copy of the book and read it, because I truly believe that it will change your life in one way or another, and perhaps in ways that neither you nor I would predict. I can say for sure that the book has definitely done so for me, and it has not only opened up my perspective on some things that we discuss in this part of our conversation, but it has also led to some very specific changes in my own habits and practices. And I'll also say I really love this second half of our conversation. Michaela and I dive into more details about his book, We talk specifically about his motivation heading into the Moab 240 last year, which of course he won. We also talk about what I now like to call the art of the pole and how to achieve that state. And you should pay close attention to that part. We also talk about death and purpose and... Michaela also makes an announcement about his plans for a big upcoming project that I am sure you are going to want to hear about. So I really hope you do order Michaela's book today and enjoy it half as much as I did. And right now, I also really hope you enjoy this portion of our conversation. Here we go. So this book of yours... Yes. Called Ultra, which, you know, for maybe most listeners of this podcast, it's so common for us now. You hear the word ultra, our mind immediately goes to a long distance running race. Right. You come back again and again at us about the original meaning of the word ultra, beyond, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. And in fact, if you had just titled the book Beyond, that would have made perfect sense, right? Right, right. And you just got done saying why you think ultra races are maybe one of the last frontiers of exploration. I wanted to ask you a couple of things, and this is going to get some people perhaps rightly angry at me, given that I'm sitting here talking to the recent winner of the Moab 240. That's right. But I'm like, all right, so let's think about beyond. Let's think about what's next. I don't know if you know, but... Uh, after my victory um, of, in Badwater in 2018, I was um, fortunate enough to to land enough support 
to to tr- to start to kick off this bigger dream that I always had since the very beginning of my journey, which was crossing on foot the biggest deserts in the world. Yeah. So in the fall of 2018, to to really push myself out there. Again, this is what inspires me. It's not about how fast I can run a distance because we already know we can do it. What fascinates me is pushing the envelope to understand where that physical limit, that, that not physical limit, that limit truly sets itself. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. I, I've run 135 miles through bad water, I, through Death Valley. I run 240 miles in Moab. I run 175 miles in, in, in Italy. I've done all these long races. And after all of them, I never settled. I never felt like that was my limit. I ran 240 miles, but I could have kept, bo- kept going. I knew that that was my limit. That was just a finish line, and I stopped there. But intrinsically, my understanding is that I'm capable of a lot more than that. So because of this desire of, you know, I, I have a very adventurous spirit behind it, and I think that's what guides me. So the desire of crossing them for the deserts wasn't just about understanding and exploring the world in its all rawness and beauty because the deserts are so diverse and so stunning. But it was about tapping into a different a different approach to what I was doing. It wasn't just about racing. It was about exploration of the world and exploration of myself beyond certain limitations. So in 2018, in the fall of 2018, I found myself in, in Atacama, in San Pedro, San Pedro de Atacama in Chile. And I tackled 600 miles of the desert, north to south, from the north end to the south end. And I did that in about eight days. No race, no competitors, just me, a couple of support uh, t- uh, vehicles, and a team of support. And that was the most amazing experience I've ever lived. Just finding myself out there. There was no no pressure of, you know, results. There was no competition. There was It was just pure adventure. Just being there, connecting with a beautiful, raw, hard, harsh, whatever you want to call it, nature and it's all its might and beauty and just finding myself there by myself with my with my just with my own two legs my breath my heart it was a transcendental experience i couldn't i still to the day have to find the words because it was so engaging it was so it was there was such presence there was such appreciation there was it was such a it came off from a great sense of gratitude for just the opportunity to be out there and experience that there was no expectations there was no pressure disconnecting from the outside world and just being fully involved fully engaged in that experience was was something absolutely fantastic and the following year in 2019 I extended that crossing the Gobi. So I pushed past the 600 miles. The Gobi was almost double, almost 1,200 miles, over 1,100 something. And I did that in just over three weeks in what I consider the most 
inhospitable place ever. The Gobi Desert is incredibly difficult. Deep sands, strong winds, high mountains, just a mix of like low blows. But that's why I went there. And coming off of the desert just gave me so much peace and so much gratitude. And it felt such a connection with the world <laughs> that I don't, I didn't need anything. I didn't need anything else. Well, I needed food and water, of course, but you know, it's, it really breaks down. It really broke down all the social patterns to me and it allowed me to really, really be there and appreciate the world in all its beauty. Because when you do that, and that's what, what I think is necessary for me to put into words properly, is it was such a life-changing experience. Because once you understand how connected all things are, you know, you really transcend all the tiny little stupid things that we you know, that we put up in our, in our, in our lives, in our society. Those are all man-made things that tend us, tend to distance us. They create separation. Once you understand, once you create that connection within yourself, you expand that connection with the world and understand that we all part of the same thing. I, you know, there was a, there was a book by Wayne Dyer that said, every problem has a spiritual solution. And it couldn't be tr more true than that. And I couldn't understand that better by putting myself in that situation. Because once you tr transcend those limitations, you understand that we're all part of the same energy, all part of the same thing. And you become, it humbles you down because you transcend the ego. You transcend all of those limitations that we put on ourselves. And you find a sense of connection with everything. And that's this, this is something that our world needs right now. It's understanding that we're all part of the same thing. And, you know, the racial, social differences that we put up are just all BS that we, that we're entertaining and that make no sense at all. In my opinion, I'm sorry. I don't want to get into political here, but you know, it's, it's something greater here. I'm talking about a very, uh, fundamental and basic thing that could resolve a lot of issues that we're going through in nowadays society. So this is where I got, <laughs> this is where I'm at. <laughs> so given everything you've just said here and talking about, you know, your adventures in places like the Gobi, I would be interested to actually have you come back. You know, we touched on the fact that you not too long ago won the Moab 240. You do such an interesting job in the book laying out for several different races that you run, like your motivation going in, how you're thinking about it and the rest. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about your kind of motivation or approach to the Moab 240, because that's a race that for a lot of people, that is you ultra. set a new bar. Yeah, that's setting a new bar. bar. And totally. um, you've just explained why maybe that wouldn't necessarily be true for you. But, but talk to us a bit about going into that and you know your experience of it. Man, I, 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 I love the question because it, it really opens up the, this, you know, you open up the talk to what's possible. Uh, you know, again, 30 years ago, we thought we accepted that a marathon was the limit. Then the 100 milers, then, then the Ironman came through. 
And we're like, oh, we can do a lot more than that. And then the 100 miles came, came around and we're like, oh, wait, now we can do so much more. For many years, the 100 miler was the staple for ultra runners. And then now we're basically, now there's a funny saying, you know, the 200s are the new hundreds. Because what the 200 represents now is what the 100 miler represent 20, 10, 20 years ago. So it's, it's, a, it's about the general understanding, raising the bar that we can achieve more. So it's no longer accepting the 100 miler as the limit. Now we're pushing it to 200. No way. Let's do 240. Now we can do 240. And I'm sure in the future, we're going to see longer races taking place. And so this to me was, was a very exciting journey going into the Moab because well, I got to tell you the truth. I didn't plan it much ahead of time. I was actually uh, signed up for the Kodiak 100 right here in Big Bear, which was going to be the one world stage event that summer. All the strongest runners from all around the U.S. and, and the, the world were going to come up here for this one stage. Like a, the, It was going to be the new UTMB for last season. And I, w- I got invited to participate. I was stoked because I'm like, not only it's a great stage event, not only I'm going to be competing with some of the best runners in the world, but it's right in my backyard. I live here now. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> out of the whole world, they pick right here. How random. So I prepared all summer and just about a week before the the, the, the race to, was going to take place, fires started going around here. So the air quality was terrible. Parts of the national forest were closed down. So now I'm like, oh, shoot. I train all summer and now what am I going to do? So all of a sudden I throw my, I decided, you know, talking to a friend, they're like, the Moab to 40 Utah is still taking place. Why don't you throw your name out there? So the registrations were already closed, but I throw my name in the hat for, you know, wait list. And about 10 days before the race, I got accepted in the race. I didn't have prepared for anything. I didn't prepare, I didn't have a team yet. I didn't do anything. So I just went out there. I had basically, I had one friend that committed to come along and she was basically, she's been a crew for me at Bedwater a couple of times and we're very good friends. And, uh, you know, I owe her immensely because she basically crewed for me by herself the whole race, but I didn't have any pacers. So I picked up a friend as I was running. He basically joined in last minute and he jumped in at about 202 miles into the race. So I basically ran 200 miles completely by myself. And he paced me for those last 20, 30 miles uh, until, you know, then eventually got to the finish line. But it's the, you know, the, the Moab represented something amazing because it was the new journey into the unknown. I never ran past, you know, I ran 600 miles in the Atacama. I ran 1,100 miles in the Gobi, but it was broken down. So I would run 50, 60, 70 miles per day, but then I would stop, eat, sleep a few hours, get back out there. So it was almost like a reset every day. Here, I did 240 miles nonstop. The longest I ran before was 175 miles, which was already a great staple right there was a great achievement which i was very proud of but 240 especially through rugged terrain because you know the moab only has about 40,000 35,000 feet of elevation change which might not be a lot compared to uh, other tough races but the terrain in itself deep sands 
those steep canyon, deep canyons rises. There's also an 11,500 feet mountains you have to climb in the middle. So it's not the easiest of, of courses. And doing it so with the desire of doing it in one push, that was my motivation. I didn't sleep. I didn't stop. It was one push. And I did it. And now I know I can do more than that. So where does that limit lies? I've yet to find out. That was a beautiful explanation. You know, reading your book, again, with these accounts of these other races, it was sort of clear, this is what I was trying to find out. This is the experiment of That's each right. of these events. And so you've, you've really beautifully laid out what the experiment of, because part of me was like, wow, did he even care about the Moab 240? Like, you know, like, <laughs> and it's like, okay, no, that, that was like, here's the experiment. Here's the question. Yeah. Can it's I, a quest. It's, it's a, quest. a quest. Yeah. That's how I see it. And that's why I always talk about, you know, almost like an adventure, an exploration, because you throw yourself out there and find out what you're capable of on the field for yourself. You don't accept preconceived concepts. You find out for yourself what you're truly capable of. And this is as fascinating and as inspiring as you can get. I think this would be a good place to talk about this concept that we touched on real briefly, pushing versus pulling. Yes. I'd love to hear you talk about if this pushing versus pulling was relevant at the Moab 240 in this attempt, like, I'm going to see if I can just not stop. That's right. Did that come into play? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, the concept of pushing versus pulling is something that really, really resonates with me, really resonated with me. It's not my concept, of course. You know, it's something that I yeah. learned through several lectures and books and, and concepts and philosophies. And, you know, there are, we don't have the cosmic truth, but we're definitely lining up a great deal of understanding of ourselves and our psyche and our potential. So picking off of these things and trying it on myself truly widened the whole experience because you take what is understood and you make it your own. You understand it truly. It's not just a, you know, a concept. You actually applied it in real, in real life. And so to me, Switching the perspective from I have to achieve something, I have to go for it, I'm working hard, I'm grinding, I'm pushing, I'm pushing, I'm struggling, that lasts only a little bit. That energy has only a certain amount. You only have a small tank for it. After a while, that energy burns out because you're exerting. Now, switch the paradigm in a way instead of pushing towards something if you have a higher calling if you're doing something that fulfills you that give you purpose that give you that inspires you you're no longer pushing towards that towards it you're getting pulled towards it so there's no more struggling there's no more striving to be something you are you understand that you already are that something you're chasing and once you accept that it's no struggle at all. It's, again, you're getting, you're lifted towards that higher calling. And of course, you know, the miles are hard. Of course, making it happen is not easy, but it's the drive 
that changes completely. It's a switch of paradigm again. And that's what uh, allows me, or at least allowed me in the past, to push myself beyond and achieve what, you know, what I achieved. Talk a little bit then about, because I think somebody who hasn't experienced that, and maybe many of us haven't experienced that, this pulling state, would just say something like, yeah, I don't believe you, right? Like <laughs> pain feels real and, uh, and can be pretty crippling. And so talk a bit about this experience when you say, you know, it sounds a little flippant, like, you know, the miles are hard. And I think people who've run the Moab 240 would be like, yes, they, they are. Agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I can, I can tell you, I can tell you this. Pain is inevitable, but suffering, my friend, is optional. <laughs> so they say. So they say. That is what they say. So the idea here is accepting the pain. You know, we often, again, we, we live in a world that cuts that out as something bad. Just because we live in our comfort, why do you need to struggle? Why do you need to, why do you need to be in pain? Why do you need to get out of your comfort zone? It makes no sense. But if you do, ac do accept the pain as necessary part of your journey, as part of your growth, because growth, evolution happens under pressure, happens under discomfort, right? We know this. It's no new concept. But applying it, it's much more difficult because when the pain kicks in, it's hard. <laughs> no shit, you might say. But um, it's, it's about accepting the pain, understanding that the pain is just a physical result, is a physical part of what you're doing. The suffering, though, is all mental. It's how we entertain the thought of pain. So if you do accept the pain, suffering goes away. This is where the push versus pull concept goes back into play. Because the push, it's a struggle. It's a force. You're forcing something. You're going against the current. Getting pulled is flowing down the river, enjoying the ride. And I'm not saying it's not easy. Because the pain is always there. It's going to be part of the journey. But you're no longer focused on it. You're no longer fighting it. You're, you're in a path of non-resistance. So this is the part, again, of the spiritual journey, in the path of non-resistance, accepting what is for what is, and just allowing yourself to live present, to live in the moment, to live fully, enjoying even what you're doing because you're pulled towards the something greater that you suffer yourself. So to me, the biggest trick is always setting the motivation. I have dropped out of plenty races. And, you know, when we talk about every interview that what I do, we always talk about the successes, but we never talk about the failures. Yep. And I think there's, and again, I'm not saying anything new. There's so much more to learn from failures than from victories. And why is that? Because every time I drop out of the race, maybe one time it happened that I had like a major physical problem. I fell off a cliff. I broke through ribs. So I had to pull out clearly. But in most of the other ones, I pulled out just because I wasn't there. I wasn't committed. I wasn't fully dedicated to what I wasn't committed to what I was doing. I wasn't, my motivation wasn't there. 
And I just accepted it. There's no reason to beat myself down or struggle and say I'm a, you know, I'm this or that or belittling myself because I didn't achieve what I set out to do. I just wasn't ready for the task ahead. And that's perfectly understandable. You know, there's, I think failure is a necessary path to reach a higher level of understanding of knowledge of yourself because not having the right motivation at one point allowed me to dig within myself deeper to find a motivation that allowed me to do well in other races. So I, I set the bar for myself. I set that calling that will pull me towards the higher goal, the higher achievement. And so, you know, it's here again, it kind of connects again to, to the talk that we had earlier about being open to the experience. I couldn't myself, I couldn't be myself down because I dropped out of a race. It just happened to be that way. And I was open and accepting that that was the experience that I had that time. And that was as simple as that. I didn't fail because I'm a failure. I, I failed because in that moment, it just didn't happen. And that's part of the flow. You accept the good and the bad. This is pretty much became my life philosophy that applied very well. I learned it through, you know, hard work on the road and trails, but it served me greatly in everyday life. I live with, you know, with intention and which is fantastic, but I also don't beat myself down when things don't go the way I want, because ultimately I realized that, you know, this, the sense of control that we have is not real. We can only do so much and then everything happens just in the energy of things and the flow of things. So accepting that rise and fall, that, you know, good moments and bad moments, that roller coaster in, in races and in life is, is a very pivotal part of my journey. It's a very important part of, of everything that I do uh, in my life nowadays. So related question, is your understanding then that if and as you were to, I'm tempted to say something like become a, a more experienced practitioner, a more experienced student yes. in, the, in the art of the pole, in the art yes. of the pole, we'll call it. Yes. Should that mean that you ought to experience fewer DNFs? I absolutely think so. You know, without, because it's a knowledge, it's acquired knowledge. It's hard-earned knowledge because, of course, every failure is upsetting. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, yeah, you can, you, you will accept it eventually, but it's always hard in the moment because you work so hard. You know, because on the one hand, you were saying, hey, you know, sometimes you line up and it's not quite there. But given yeah. everything else you've said, if you are able to tap into that right motivation, get that yeah. connection to yeah. to the fabric of your soul, to the infinite, yeah. as you've talked about the person who was the better practitioner, the more experienced practitioner of that, every time you decide to line up for a race or undertake a new goal, challenge, yeah. challenge in a way you've said success is predetermined. It is in a way, but you have to have that motivation set. Yeah. And not all, it's not always, it's not a given. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah. not a given. You know, you can work hard. I worked hard in all the races I did, but 
a lot of times, well, sometimes, a few times, it just didn't happen. And in being open and being accepting of that, I think it's part of the recipe to be to have longevity in our discipline and ultimately to also live a better life. Because you take so much from expectations and frustration and stress and discomfort, not discomfort, uh, and uh, uh, you kind of appreciate what it is for what it is. You know what I mean? You just appreciate what it is for what it is. It's as simple as that. Uh, it's, you know, you cannot force something. You cannot, that's just, again, the push. I could have pushed through it, but it made no sense at the moment because I didn't set, I didn't find the right motivation to push through certain barriers. So the stronger your motivation, the stronger your inspiration, the stronger the pull towards what you're doing becomes. So again, it's not about pushing for the finish line, struggling to get there, but it's uh, you're getting basically, you know, swept by the energy that you set for yourself, the motivation, the inspiration calls you towards the finish line. And that, of course, still, you're still going to have to log in those miles. You're still going to have to make it happen. But when the going gets tough, you have a solid anchor that will allow you to keep moving forward and keep putting a a foot in front of the other. And when you have that motivation set, nothing can stop you. (laughs) I want to ask you about death and long-term damage. Yes. Right? I mean, there are descriptions in your book you know, where I, I think without exaggeration, you make a comment, like talking about your first hundred miler where you're like, yeah, one more step might have actually literally killed me. You strike me as somebody who, you know, likes the idea of being a healthy person, a healthy runner, you know, well into your 60s and 70s and 80s. You also are someone who has demonstrated an interest, a willingness, an obsession to risk death, to pursue and you know be successful in certain challenges. At some level, to be successful in almost anything, I think does require a willingness to die. But there's also, it's maybe not even a related question, it's just a different question of like, what if you're going so hard that you were, say at Badwater, do long-term respiratory damage, or let's say in the Yukon, get frostbite to the degree where we've got to amputate a foot. How do you think about and square all these things? I think that accepting death, it's only accepting death that you allow to truly live. Because you take away the fear, you take away the whatever, you know, we don't know we don't you know, know whatever we don't know whatever happens and but i think that we tend to cage ourselves in the fear of death and we preclude ourselves from incredible experiences so the satisfaction that i take from these experiences transcend the fear of death and i'm not saying i want to die but i am accepting the fact that I'm accepting my mortality. <laughs> Let's say it this way. And and I don't want to live 
I don't want to live a life where I am, you know, nice and comfortable and like in a prepackaged type of thing, type of experience. I want to get out there and I want to see what this whole, what this life is all about. So it's almost like saying, you know, when, when explorers in the past centuries would take off for the deep blue sea, that's exactly the same thing. You know, they wouldn't, they didn't know they would ever come back. A lot of them didn't, but those who did, they found new worlds. They found new lands. They discovered new horizons. They expanded the humanity. They expanded the knowledge of our, of our species. And so, you know, I think that the fear of death is always, is always a, you know, very difficult topic because something we all have to face at a point or another in our lives. I think that um, we all, in a way or another, come to face the existential questions of who we are, what we're doing here. But I think that I transcended that that one night in New York about 12 years ago, sitting outside of a, of a window on the 15th floor of a skyscraper. And uh, this is uh, this is a very difficult topic to talk about, but I share that because that there's no need to hide behind a finger. You know, I think that in a way or another, we all come to those questions in a time in in a, you know at one point in our lives, and perhaps even more than once. I think we all come to the understanding of who am I? What am I doing here? Is this even worth it? And, you know, just confronting that, that thought, I think is liberating because you can either jump off and that's the end of it, or you confront that demon. And when you come out of it, I don't want to say you're invincible, but you're pretty damn strong because you, que you question yourself at the deepest level. It's not about what I'm doing. It's not about, you know, how much money we got. It's not about the things you get. It's about you really question yourself, what the heck am I doing on this earth? So to me, that night, that cold spring night, 2009, New York City, it was almost like as if I was reborn. Like a chapter of my life, my, my old self died there. I didn't jump off, thankfully, though I thought about it. But the, the thought of my family and the love that I received, it brought me into a state of gratitude towards life and appreciation towards what I, who I am and what I have in my life. Not material, what I have in terms of who I am, the people that I have around, the love, the everything, that, the positive that I had in my life. And that brought me to reconsider everything, to reassess everything, to recalibre my direction. It's almost like I found a new compass. And the compass opened up my, my eyes to a whole new world. That's when I was reborn. That's when the drive was born to change the course of the stream, like we talk about in the book, and simply understand that I needed to make a change in my life. 
You know, at any time in our lives, we can reinvent ourselves. In any time in our lives, we can, doesn't matter how dark and deep the, the pit seems at that point, but it's only when you hit the bottom that you can go back up. There's only one way. And that's when change begins. Change is always difficult. We always fear it. And it's probably why it can only happen in a moment of distress, in a moment of difficulty. Because if you're comfortable, why change? It's not required. You're comfortable. You're not going to evolve out of the shell. You're comfortable. But if the shell becomes tight, it's almost, I love the, the metaphor of the crab. You know, it's the, there's a, there's a monk that shared this, you know, it's the crab after a while, you know, he can just, when it, when it grows and grows and grows, the shell becomes tighter and tighter and tighter. And he can decide to stay there and shrink his existence and uncomfortable, or he can break through, suffer because the path to growth and evolution is a, is a very difficult one. But if you don't take it, you'll never truly express yourself. And that will be a waste. So that very night, I understood that I could make a change if I wanted to. And thankfully, i got to tell you now, thankfully, I was able to come to the realization. And I'm beyond, I feel blessed, you know, that I was able to pick myself up, carve a whole new path for myself. And now I'm here sharing my story with you. In that moment, it's the decision to end things or not end things. And, and I, I've almost been ended. Um, I've, I, you know, when I was 16, I should have died twice in the span of three days, weird injury, but that's, but it wasn't. Uh, so I, I know what that feels like to kind of be on death's door, but I don't, I haven't had the experience of, you know, should I end this or not? And it seems like from what you've just said, it's the people who in that moment recognize or see the exit. Like I, there could be this other path. I could, I could throw off this crab shell. That's that right. that what, whatever gets them through that moment can then open things into this amazing new future and realm. That's right. That's and right. you know, you mentioned in that moment, you I, I was kept wondering if you were gonna use the word like purpose. And yes. I didn't hear you say purpose in that moment. I heard you talk about your family, the things in your life you had to be grateful for. Now, now I would describe you as someone who kind of has a phenomenal sense of purpose. And a lot of it, at least, is communicated in this sense of I'd like to be an explorer like an explorer of the human spirit. What are we That's capable right. of? Yeah. And that, I mean, I think, I, I think, um, I do think maybe like living with a sense of purpose is the most powerful thing in the world. Like, so the, the difference between someone who is in that moment, perhaps in New York, yeah, who doesn't, I like, I don't know what my purpose is. So why go on versus right. someone who does have that sense and the stronger that sense of purpose, perhaps the more and more unstoppable. Does that resonate with you? Or do you think about things differently than absolutely, that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do agree um, with what you're saying and understand, you know, I, th this is a very, very, um, very good question because, you know, we often tend to, and at least this is my perception, we often tend to 
identify with what you what we do. But we are not what we do in life. Our being, our our essence is is something bigger. It's something that that's why in that moment of thinking about ending things, it wasn't about thinking about career, thinking about money, thinking about what I do in life. My lifesaver was the people around me, the love, the the grat. It started from a point of gratitude, appreciation, and and this is where I think everything starts, because once you're liberated by those patterns, by those chains that weigh us down, we reassess who we are, and at that point, at least for myself, I was able to transcend that moment and explore my realm to find what would give me purpose, what would give me fulfillment. So it's almost like a second layer. Of course, life gives you, you know, the opportunity to explore your passions and find your purpose and find something that gives you fulfillment. But that's not who we are. Again, I don't identify necessarily with what I do because I am, I am something greater than that intrinsically. You, me, everyone listening, we're not what we do. And so to me, that was just a moment of coming down from everything that I lived before in the fashion industry, the the reckless lifestyle, drugs, alcohol, and all of that stuff. You know, I, I chased that. I followed that dream. It wasn't for me. And it kind of allowed me to reassess my priorities, my necessities in life. Because again, I was identifying so much with who I was at that moment and transcending that and understanding that I could just change completely, that I could become not just a bigger crab, I could become a different fish, I can become a whale, I can become whatever I wanted in that moment. You know, we're humans and we have a huge potential. So to me... Again, starting from that point of love and gratitude broke down those barriers and opened up the gates to a whole new life. And that's why I say I was reborn that night, that morning, actually, and allowed me to to really not worry about anymore about my social status or how I looked in the eyes of other people because that's trivial stuff. It didn't matter a thing. It allowed me to dig deep and kind of rediscover who I felt I was, how I was raised, the things that passioned me, the thing that, you know, that gave me a spark and the things that would give me joy in life. And so to me, it was almost like a necessary path to discover, to discover my true self and ultimately live an intentional life with purpose, with fulfillment. Because here is not just a matter of winning races or looking good in the eyes of those following us. But to me, the purpose comes in the quest for a better self, for a better version of myself. And it's not about the physical quest. It's about an overall quest. I expanded my knowledge on every level. And don't get me wrong, you're never arrived. You know, when people think about, I, I, I often laugh when I hear people, uh, oh, I'm, I'm woke. 
just because you're saying you're woke, you 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 just stating that you're fast asleep because the true person that is on the path of and this higher understanding on a consciousness awareness level, you understand that it's a never-ending path. From the moment you're born to the moment you die, you're never gonna start learning. You're never gonna stop learning and widening your consciousness and awareness and understanding of yourself and our place on this beautiful planet of ours. So to me, it broke down all those barriers, and it became a quest to to my better self and. And more importantly, how I can contribute to a higher level. Because now it brings me back to the very beginning. I understood how powerful, how strong the power of inspiration can be. Straight out from the pages of the Incarnazis, the guy not only changed my life, but he literally saved it. So now that I'm in this position where I can help others, inspire others through my story, I couldn't be more grateful. I couldn't be more appreciative for the life that i chosen. And this keeps on firing up that fire inside and it gives you even more purpose and fulfillment. So it's it's a beautiful path. And I, man, I'm so, so excited and thankful right now to be here sharing with you because I see you're understanding what I'm talking about. It's a very difficult topic. <laughs> yeah, and and- these are difficult topics and they are like the most important topics that, um, someone needs to talk about them. <laughs> someone should probably talk about them. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Dean, yes. how, how much have you talked with him, interacted with him? Have you had a chance to yes. sort of convey this to him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've had the, I've had the great privilege of running with him in the Marine country, Marine hill, you know, yeah. hills up uh, above uh, San Francisco a few years ago. And it's, you know, him and I have been in touch since then. Um, I received a beautiful message after I won bad water from him. And, you know, and then I don't, I'm, I'm sure you saw the, the praise that he did for my book yes. and, and all of that stuff. So to me, you know, just be able to connect with a guy was was an outstanding honor, an incredible privilege because I tr- I shared with him how impactful his story was, how you know completely life changing his book was in my life, and how again it just it didn't just change it; it actually saved it because it truly showed me a path. He showed me the way. And he gave me, you know, despite we both came, we came from different life paths, career paths. We came to the same understanding. We almost had the same crisis around the same time coming off of successes and, you know, material successes and career and all of that. And he showed me a new way. He showed me a new world. And telling him his things, it was, it was just the blessing of a lifetime. I might dare to speak for Dean here, um, but, you know, on the one hand, it strikes me that this is very much like a two-way street. So you being able to communicate to someone like, hey, um, you actually kind of literally saved my life. Talk about the meaning and joy that that would then bring back to Dean, right? As we all are doing our best to live out our days in a meaningful way to... To hear that from someone 
it's got to be moments like that where you think, okay, do something right. <laughs> I've, d- I've done, I've done some, I've managed to do something right in this, in this that's life. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, that's the beauty of life and the, the beauty of ex- uh, exchange synergy, exchange energy. You know, he gave me so much. And now, you know, I don't want to say I owe it all to him because, of course, you know, it was definitely a, you know, hard-earned journey uh, of, as you say, dedication and commitment, all of that. But because he sparked that light, you know, I I definitely had to let him know, (laughs) you know, I had to give him, I need, I had to give back. And so this is my way of, in a way, giving back, sharing my story and hopefully inspiring others to perhaps transcend their circumstances and tap into themselves, break through those barriers because life is beautiful. There's a whole new world out there. You know, a lot of times we feel caged by the situations in our lives. And when you're at the bottom of the pit, you don't see any way out. So the only way out is looking up, following the light, and believing in yourself, that's the only, that's the only, um, recipe that I have for transcending your situation and allowing yourself to live, to live fully, to live an intentional, purposeful and fulfilling life. And as was the case in your situation, I mean, and this kind of is a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you about next. I mean, this is where the right book or the right author at the right time. I mean, I, you know, we we're living in our current, like Uber technological age with um, advances in technology coming faster and faster all the time. Many of them are wonderful and amazing. Some of them we need to really evaluate if they're (laughs) not so much (laughs) doing more harm than good, but I still think of, you know, the book, the, the printed book as being just an unbelievable, powerful technological invention of modern society that the right author, the right words on a page can be un, like absolutely transformative. And so the next question, one of the things I, I don't have a read about on you is how much reading you do, or if you have had seasons where you were really reading a lot and then seasons where you read very little, or maybe you aren't, you know, you meet some people and they're like, I read a hundred books a year. And I'm like, how on earth do you do that? (laughs) You talk about a few books in your book that are incredibly important to me personally, but I would just be curious to hear you. Some people learn from, you know, first and foremost, from their own experiences. Some people are voracious readers. What sort of person are you when it comes to books? Well, I, I gotta tell you, I started off like devouring books. When I first started this journey, I started like totally diving into this whole world. It was like adventure. It was about, you know, different, uh, endurance sports, different, uh, explorers, different, you know, stories. And, and that's what I think fueled my appetite for, for all of this. Um, then of course, you know, throughout years, my interests changed, but it was always towards the real. And so the more I started digging, 
the more I found, just like you say, you know, so you kind of open up a door that opens up to a whole new room, to a whole new castle, to a whole new world. And, you know, in these past years, I definitely tapped more into the philosophical and into the spiritual more than the actual, you know, physical tasks or explorations and things like that. Just because again, this is where I think the true secret of life lies. Expanding our understanding of who we are intrinsically more than physically. And so, you know, well, one of the one of the very last book I've read that I read already like two or three times is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. You know, I've been reading all sort of books. I I am a avid uh, reader, uh, you know, of all types of, I don't want to say motivational, but here, you know, I mentioned Wayne Dyer earlier. Um, Alan Watts, huge, huge influence on my life. So he were talking about, you know, something that is, is not, you know, they're not easy reads. And a lot of times, as I say, you know, a couple of, like a few books I had to read two or three times to kind of really absorb the concepts. Because, you know, again, we are raised in a certain way that is completely counter, I don't want to say counterproductive, but it's, it, it goes against the current of what their teachings are like. So you kind of had to dismantle, almost like unlearned what you learned before to open up your mind to this understanding and these new knowledges. And it's almost like, I, I don't remember who made the, 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 the example of the mind is like a teacup. You know, if it's already full of water, you, if you pour nothing, you know, it just keeps on flowing. So you need to empty the cup first before you can fill it up with new knowledge, right? So this is pretty much was my understanding, my approach throughout these past years. I have, and I love physical books. So I don't have any ebooks and I have two full bookcases in my house filled with books. I, I I cannot tell you I read uh, 20, 30, 50 books a year because there have been times that I read 50 books a year. There are times that I read three books a year. So the fluctuation happens in base of necessity, in base of thirst, in base of metabolizing the concepts. Because again, there's I've been stuck on a book for over six months to a year. And I just keep reading and rereading and rereading until it made sense. So I don't think there's a one size fits all type of, uh, you know, solution. Uh, but it's about really opening up your mind and accepting the new knowledge, the new understanding. Um, for example, this past six months, I've been trying to read another couple of books. I haven't been able to finish one just because I've been so involved in the making of my own that that took, you know, in between training and working on the book, there's only that much energy that you can focus that you can give out. So I'm very, very careful with that expense, with with that, um, yeah, with spending, yeah. you know, wasting yep. that. I don't want to say wasting, but expanding that energy. Yep. And so once you understand it, once you become aware of that, I think that's a real sweet spot. Because you understand that, you know, I don't stress myself out. Oh, I didn't read any books this year. It's okay. I don't need to beat myself down. I'm not, a, I'm not, you know, 
I'm not an ignorant person because I haven't read a book, but I am in a situation in my life that I understand that right now there's no space in my mind to focus on something new. So I'm almost like I became more patient with myself in this journey. I became more accepting of the situations. And that, as I said, you know, it kind of brings back to the beginning. It brings me into a flow and understanding that when I can, I will. When I cannot, I won't. And I'm okay with it. Yep. Well, and some of my favorite authors and thinkers, um, the Stoics were really good on this point where they would kind of say, like, listen, read your books, study the lessons, get clear on the principles, then put the damn book down. Go live what you've learned. Yes. Um, by the way, Thoreau does this as well and yep. says this as well and in kind of encourages us like at a certain point, you got to stop reading and go live that life that is, you know, that go put into practice what you've learned. That's and, right. and I, I, um, I think a lot about that. And I'm, I'm currently at a point in my life where, and people have heard me say this on various podcasts, like I'm trying to wrench space back for more reading because at Blister, it's been 10 years of we are putting out so much content, producing, in some ways, creating new genres in certain spaces. And I'm, I'm pretty hungry having that been so much of my focus for over 10 years now. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the you know for 10 years of my life it was it was the student it was 10 years of studying philosophy and so i love this bit of life where these seasons of let's input read yep. as much as possible then there's going to be seasons of output That's where right. we're putting out into the world like That's what right. we've learned from all those damn hours reading books yep yep so it all like, makes sense yep yeah i think we came to the same conclusion there i want to circle back just with your own book ultra it's interesting, right? Now, this book has a bit of an interesting kind of backstory and origin story. And I, I would you mind talking a little bit about that? How how it came to be and why it's sort of getting released now, but it kind of had Definitely. a previous release? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I um it so it happened that in um I was coming I would it was like the the, the winter 2016. I just came back from the Yukon. And I received a message from, uh, from a friend of mine, a famous, um, a pretty famous, uh, sports photographer from, uh, from, from Italy. Um, and he sends an email and he's like, Oh, look, my friend Falco, um, is going to be in, 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 you know, Malibu, California, Southern California for, for the whole winter. And I thought I would put you guys in contact. So we were both CC to the email and he made this introduction. And, um, you know, it was a freaking awesome email because I knew Falco. He's a very, very, very famous and popular author in Italy. He's like a, you know, millions, million copies type of author, right? And I grew up literally reading his books. So just having the opportunity to meet the guy, it was like, I don't want to say like I was like a giggling fan, but I was like a giggling fan. You know what I mean? I was like, oh my God, this is great. You know, I'm going to go. Because he's also like, he loves to run and he loves nature. And he's like that, you know, he's a guy that 
lived an incredible life because his father was a very famous war reporter, very famous author. And he lived in, he basically was raised, you know, traveling along with his family, with his father throughout these times. Falco was raised in China throughout the Mao Revolution. He was in, in Vietnam during the Khmer War. He was in India exploring the sadhu's world and all of that. You know, he's a guy that lived an incredible life. Uh, a very, very, like a true student of, of that philosophy, you know, the Eastern philosophies. And so to me, just being able to, to connect with a guy and meet a guy, it was a huge privilege. It was, again, I was a giggling fan. So we started, we met one time. He met, he invited me to his um, house right off of Paradise Cove in Malibu, which sounds like a terrible place. <laughs> and yeah. um, and uh, we started, we went on a round together. So we went up on the hill, the Santa Monica Mountains, and right after the run, he was like, oh, why don't you hang out with for lunch and introduce me to his family, his two little kids. And man, it was like, it was like we known each other since we were kids. It was like we were already, we already like in a matter of hours, we broke through the barriers and we were almost felt like friends, brothers. It was like such a great level of connection. Like we were speaking the same language. And so that one run became two, three, four, five. And, you know, we started having dinners together because he spent, you know, he lives in Florence, but he has a place in Malibu where he comes usually f- to spend the winter. And so, you know, we became great friends. And, you know, it was funny because one time we were having dinner and he's like, well, you know what? You know, we started opening up, of course, about ourselves, our lives, you know, you I was amazed to hear his stories and, you know, I was privileged in a way to share mine. And one day he was like, you know what? I think you have such an, a great story. I, you know, let's, let's, let's do a little interview. Let's see where he, where he goes. So we sat down for like maybe 30 minutes. We do a little interview. The following week he calls me. He's like, oh, Vanity Fair picked it up. We got, we're in the first page. And I'm like, holy cow. Okay. That sounds pretty good. So, the article was published basically a month after, and I happened to be in Italy when it was released. The morning they released the article, basically not even eight hours later, in the afternoon, I got one of the biggest uh, publishing company over there in Milan calling me directly, and he's like, we love the story. We want you guys to write a book. Here's a contract. And I was like, Oh boy, you know, this is like, you know, it's almost like a dream because I'm like, okay, now they want me to write a book with Falco. That's like, it's almost like, oh, they want me to make a book with, where they want me to make a, a movie with Steven Spielberg. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. It's almost like at that level. And so I was blown away. I came back and I was like, hey, we got a contract. What do you want to do? And he was like, yeah, let's dig in. So we went through this process about six months to a year. You know, I spent some time in Florence. He spent some time over here. And over the course of about six months to to a year, we were able to release a book in Italy in 2017. And, you know, it was just amazing. It was just amazing being able to, you know, open up. It was almost like a shrink session for me because 
you know, a lot of these concepts that I open up in the book were, you know, difficult stories in my life. You know, a lot of times when you, you go through different difficult patches, you kind of shove them down and you kind of put them aside or you just throw them behind your shoulders and you don't really process through them. So that book allowed me to open up fully and dig in and really, you know, process what happened. And it was an amazing process and it was an amazing journey and it was just fantastic to be able to travel the country. We had meetings all over. We had presentations, uh, you know, in all the big cities. We had like big TV shows and radios and all of that. So I was thrown into this whole new world and just be able to share my story at that level was, was, was a, such a privilege. And then this past couple of years, you know, one thing led to another. We're busy in a way, we're busy in the other. So the book took a little, a little extra time. But fortunately this year, I was able to pull the trigger. We worked on the adaptation and basically it was the next week, not even a couple of weeks, the book is going to come out. So June 22nd, here we come. So the, the book was first published in Italian? That's right. Now it is in English. Now we have the, ad- the English adaptation, which is going to go pretty much worldwide. Yep. Yeah. It's going to be available pretty much internationally. Yeah. I'm afraid my Italian isn't very good. And I haven't seen, you know, the this sort of original Italian version. But right. one of the things that is really striking about this English version is... I would just describe it. It's why we were talking about it's a big book, but a fast read. Right. It is incredibly, like, strikingly simple, the language. Right, right. It's also, again, as I've, I've, you've heard me say, people have heard me say, this is a big book. This is, um, we're dealing with big topics here. One of the things that was such a constant source of frustration for me back in my days of academic philosophy yeah. is, you know, you you go pick up what is regarded, you know, something by Immanuel Kant, right? right? right. Or some contemporary, some <laughs> contemporary times you have to read it. <laughs> yeah. And you still probably don't quite get what's going on. Or even, even to take a more modern example, just go pick up a, you know, one of the top journals in academic philosophy today. And they're typically incredibly complicated. That's right. And I actually have a working theory about this, that part of the reason that so much academic philosophy is so difficult and dense and sometimes convoluted is I think that insecurity actually is at the heart of a lot of work in academic philosophy. By which I mean... Because you tried to construct more. I think if we really cared about these ideas, I think if we were putting out books that were supposed to really help each of us better understand this life, better think through the questions of what's worth valuing and what isn't, we would work as writers to write in the clearest, simplest way possible. So people could assimilate it. So people could assimilate it. Or it's like put the ideas plainly out on the table so that they can easily be evaluated and perhaps be found wanting. Perhaps I write a book and it's like, yeah, dude, that idea is not very good and and it's actually dangerous or harmful in certain ways. So this is one of the things I really admire. I really wish that more because I do care about like what happens in philosophy classrooms. Right. 
right? But you also um, want to put in an actual everyday life and understand how it can be applied. And this, you know, I'm sorry I'm jumping on, but I answer, I answer right away saying that that was our main goal with Falco. That's why at the beginning, you know, we said it's a recollection of our conversations because we kept it almost like on a colloquial level where we, of course, you know, dug into difficult, difficult and, you know, sometimes very difficult topics, but it's about delivering the message in the most simple and clear way. Because again, it made no sense to use crazy difficult words or crazy difficult phrases or concepts if you don't understand it. So put it, the idea was to make it as relatable as possible. And I think that, you know, the Italian version was, was strikingly straightforward and direct. And I appreciate the fact that the, the, the English version came through pretty much the same way. Um, and maybe, you know, I dare say that I kind of like the English version even better because these are concepts that we, I don't know, it, it's something that we, that we are working on, that we're working towards, that we're studying and we're just sharing it in a practical way. So I'm excited for this book to come out. I can't wait to, you know, of course, you know, there's a, gr- there's a great deal of, you know, you often ask yourself if, if you could have done better here, if you could have done better there. But I got to say, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to get my word out there. And hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll receive good feedbacks and see what people think. The book is coming out June 22nd. That's right. What else is on your radar these days? What, what other challenges have you already signed up for or are you eyeballing and it's kind of piquing your interest? Well, I have, um, I have bad water again this summer. Just because, just because, yeah, you know, I struggle quite a bit to sign up again for the fact that, you know, once the race goes well, I always look for something bigger, but I do have something bigger planned, uh, which we leave it as a dot, dot, dot type of thing. So we'll talk about it perhaps after, if you like. Okay, I would love to. <laughs> so I'm doing bad water, but that's not the end of the challenge. Um, so dot, dot, dot. And then uh, I'm doing Tahoe 200 in September. So it's uh, part of that Moab uh, circuit type of thing. Yeah, yep. And then I have an even bigger project, uh, which I'm working on, scheduled for the fall. And, uh, and here I can reveal, you know, I haven't really uh, made it public yet, but I'll be happy to share it with you today. I uh, probably around the end, mid end of October, I plan on running cross country from San Francisco to New York and try to go for the fastest time. Wow. So this will be a pretty big undertaking, pretty big challenge considering the 3000 miles that away from me out there. Wow. But, uh, you know, as I said before, I'm, um, I'm very much drawn to broader and bigger challenges. And, and I think in a time where, you know, the international traveling is still in uncertainty, doing something in the country with, I have a pretty good, you know, I'm very excited because I want to do it for, for a bigger message. I want to bring out a message of unity. I want to do it for something worthwhile. And so, you know, carrying that motivation and inspiration with me, I'm sure is going to be fundamental to make it on the other side, on the other side of the, of this beautiful country of ours. 
Fantastic. I'm I'm very glad to hear you have some uh, some things in mind. I was real worried that I, you might yeah, just be like, right? yeah, I don't know. No <laughs> ideas. Done. That's no. it. <laughs> so, um, well, Michaela, this has been a real pleasure. Likewise. I've really enjoyed, one, your book, where I got to learn a whole lot more about your life and equally just this conversation today. I'm slightly at a loss of words, I guess, which is ironic, two and a half hours in here. <laughs> I think there are some really big and important and inspiring things that that you've been up to for quite a while now. And um, like I said, I, I started from a place of suspicion, you know? I get it. I get it. Yes. Yep. And that's um, pretty much where Folko started too. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, it's just a model, you know, I'm like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's just, uh, it really is. I think inspiring is the right word. The choices you've been making, the path you're on, how you're thinking about and seeing the world. I just can't think of what person at any stage of life wouldn't find value in thinking about some of these things for the first time or revisiting some of these things that perhaps they were pretty keyed into at a certain point of their life, maybe have gotten away from that. And uh, I am very excited for people to hear our conversation today and and even more so to, to read for themselves this book. I think we did a really good job. Like we didn't even talk about the Yukon race. No, no, yeah, we didn't we, get into that, into the actual running thing, because I think it's, again, as we said at the beginning, these are just stories to share a deeper message. The running is just a means, yeah. Yeah, but I, I think that, like, if anyone's wondering, like, well, I just heard these guys talk for two and a half hours, trust me when I say we have not undermined the book itself. Like, I think that if you've listened to this and then go read the book, you're there's still so going more. Oh, there's yeah. there's so much more and um that's pretty pretty good i'm i'm happy for that and um i absolutely Definitely. would love to connect again down the line and check in with you after bad water or uh whenever absolutely. I, I would love to absolutely yeah let, we're we're definitely gonna keep in touch and uh share more stories that we move along <laughs> well i look forward to it thanks again for both the book and this conversation jonathan thank you so much i look forward to talk to you again soon well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks to Michaela for the great conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again real soon. <laughs>